Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our colleague Noel is not here today, but will be rejoining us shortly. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Matt, are you a are you a fan of canned seafood? I, w- I, I was talking to Paul earlier this evening about this. Yes, uh, I actually really am. Back in the old How Stuff Works days, uh, I would either bring a can of soup for my lunch or one of those. It's like a. It would be tuna and like some crackers and I think a little pack? packet of mayo. I, with that the, was with my, the little mint? Yeah, because I could afford it. And until yeah. uh, I realized how much salt was in the soup. And uh, some things about the canned food industry. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go, right? Yeah, man, I remember this as well. Like I, well, also for everyone listening, uh, Matt and I often in our earlier days, in our salad days, Matt and I could not afford salad. salad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we would we would get what are essentially uh, civilian rations. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes they'd spice it up, right? Sometimes you could get the uh, tuna retort pack with a little bit of habanero in it, a little bit of jalapeno in it, uh, and we we ate these things while we were breaking our hearts, making crazy, crazy stuff on the internet. Uh, it, it, Matt, you we've never stopped. Our, <laughs> <laughs> we've never stopped breaking our hearts. And, uh, our pal, Matt, you remember our pal, Scott Benjamin, mm-hmm. right? From car stuff. He, uh, 
famously doesn't doesn't get music and also does not like seafood. Uh, do you know anyone else that doesn't care for seafood? Oh, no. No, my son, gosh, you guys, this is, if you want to know something that'll break the bank, have an almost eight-year-old that decides he loves sushi. What? Because <laughs> how do you, how do you tell him? No, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> I don't like su- sushi though. Yeah, he does. And not the, not the kind that I, that, uh, I should be buying. Anyway, it's, it's tough. It's tough out here for the for sushi dad. <laughs> what? It's oh, tough no. out here for the sushi dad. <laughs> also, also sushi is, uh, sushi is reliant on freshness, right? Yeah. So, so canned tuna sushi is more TikTok flex than, mm. uh, than something you would see at that fancy restaurant. Funny story while we're while we're in our seafood disclosure. One time years and years ago, Matt, I learned about the best sushi restaurant in Atlanta because you told me the day after you accidentally walked in. Wait, what is it? Is it the Kura Revolving Sushi Place? No, no, no. Like I, I it was a big deal. I still haven't gone. I don't know if I can afford it. Oh, okay. Kura's my jam. Revolving sushi is the thing, man. It's it's I love the it. thing. I love it. I love the uh I love the little conveyor belt. Yes. You know what I mean? I love the gamification of it. Yeah. Right. If you're, <laughs> you if you're good at it, things. you could trick the system to not what spending too much money. You Wait, figure how? it out. Just you you eat the expensive stuff that's just the same price as the not expensive stuff. Okay. Right on, right on, bro. Uh, but like, so seafood's not for everyone, but the people who like it, like Matt and like me and like many of us listening tonight, people who like seafood love it. In the U.S. alone, canned or tinned fish sales were estimated to be around $9.5 billion. No way. 2022. Wow. Okay. That's a lot of, that's a lot of cans, you know? Well, think about the number of fish that equals, right? Like that's a ton of fish to be processed and canned and then eaten. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And especially considering, as we'll find uh, this evening, that many of the... It's kind of like how the Europeans were when they were uh, when they were scarfing up buffalo. Uh, <laughs> they don't use all of the fish, right? Only specific parts of a maritime organism make it into the can, and people love it. Apparently, the canned fish sales in the U.S. are anticipated to reach seventeen point two billion dollars over the next decade. It's massive. Well, okay. Now, just quickly here for my math, and I'm thinking back to the How Stuff Works times. I did buy that stuff a lot in bulk when I couldn't afford other foods. When, you know, like right out of college working, you know, first job kind of stuff. Something other than ramen noodles. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. But I wonder how much of that is a global shift or at least a U.S. shift towards 
not being able to afford other kinds of foods, right? Um, and we know this, we know the squeeze is on for everybody when it comes to just making your dollars go a little bit further. That would make sense if they're anticipating a huge growth like that. Mm, yeah, agreed. And the, the problem is, like we always say, when you get to a certain threshold of finance, you get to inevitable corruption. There is something, forgive us, fishy about the about the uh, about the seafood industry. Matt, I I apologize to you uh, for that one. Uh, I guarantee you, it will not be the last one in this episode. Okay, good. Yeah, you're going to come with some fire as well. I think um, we're going to give a shout out to my girlfriend, Brandy Supra, who hipped us to this, this absolutely unclean thing. There is a conspiracy at the heart of canned seafood, ready-made seafood. If you are walking through a Walmart or you're walking through a Tesco, there is some stuff they don't want you to know. Here are the facts. Yes, so this concept of preserving seafood in a tin, a can of some sort, has been around for a long time. That's It's a technology, let's say, that really made its strides in the 1800s, and human beings have been eating seafood in this way for a long time, largely because, again, fish is something you need to either eat fresh or find a way to preserve it as soon as you catch it, right? So that's why... You know, the behemoths of the industry grew so much when they did, because as soon as you've got a good setup where there's fresh fish coming in and you've got a facility where you can process that fish and get it in these cans and get it on a shelf somewhere, it'll last for a decade. I mean, at least some of the techniques have improved, but you can, this stuff has a crazy long shelf life. So once you get started, boom. <laughs> you're in yeah mm -hmm. man and canneries are weird uh for anyone living outside of the u.s or for anyone who has lived off the grid in the u.s you should know that canneries are one of the easiest ways to make off the books money you will just be in a really gross situation for a season and then you can be on your way to your rainbow gathering or hop a freight, or what have you. Uh, Matt, what you point out is that you and I were kind of early adopters, childhood adopters of this sort of preparation. Well, our parents, I don't know about your parents, but my parents had always had tuna in the house, canned tuna, and we it would be a part of a meal, like a family meal, once or twice a week. Did you guys um, do like tuna casserole? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The whatever, whatever those things were called back in the day, um, <laughs> just add the tuna and it's got the, you know, the noodles in a box or whatever. And you're Bro, good to go Tuna helper. That's it. That's the stuff. <laughs> um, but but I wonder how much of it is a generational thing, because, you know, that's 80s to 90s for me, like up into about the year 2000. And I wonder how much of that fell away as the generational shift you know, is coming into our, us being parents now, right? Because um, I don't serve my son a lot of canned fish. 
Hmm. <laughs> and uh, as the Templar said to Indiana Jones, you have chosen wisely. So the, uh, it, it, let's look at this. I, I love this timeline, man. So 2020, 2019, 2020, another pandemic hits. We, again, we get a lot of love on this show for quote unquote predicting that, but we just looked at the math uh, and it was statistically inevitable. The next one is also statistically inevitable. In 2020, a lot of people were surprised. I can't go out anymore. You know, my institutions that, uh, upon which I rely are failing. So the folks who used to shop at a grocery store as just sort of civilian level people all of a sudden started thinking a little more in terms of preparation, in terms of if things go sideways, will I have enough to eat until the rule of law returns? And so they bought a lot of canned fish. Canned fish reached this massive, like, uh, Mariah Carey at Christmas level of popularity. And then, amid all this, there was a TikTok, uh, what do we call it, a trend, a TikTok trend that went viral? Yeah. Did you see this one? Oh, I did see this one. Uh, This was a concept of creating, like, a charcuterie board charcuterie i don't know how to say that whatever i don't have enough of them to pronounce it often enough to know how to say it so uh but it's the thing where you get a board and you put a bunch of meats and cheeses and stuff on it and olives maybe if you're real fancy uh but in this case it was different cans of different fish right with that are canned in different substances some in water some in oils some in tears i guess i don't know Mm, foreshadowing a bit Mm mm-hmm Yes, uh, but it was just a very popular thing. I, I don't know how much we can say that TikTok contributed to it. I think, Ben, what your, your point about just everybody was seeing a potential future that not everyone had thought about, right? The, I can always go to the grocery store, we all thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, what will you do when you walk in the grocery store and nothing's on the shelf? Americans are not familiar with that experience, by and large. Uh, what will you do when the grocery stores close their doors, right? Shout out to uh, Stickman. The, <laughs> the point is, this is a big business. You don't have to like seafood to be affected by the seafood industry. And we've talked in the past about overfishing, ocean acidification, all these kinds of things, they're, they're very unsexy conspiracies because they are true and they are happening now as you listen this evening. Matt, I want to shout you out and ask you a little bit more about some of the shenanigans you found regarding price fixing. Price fixing for 10 seafood accelerated during the pandemic and originated before People started panicking, especially with, of course, the like the the most popular canned seafood in the United States, canned tuna. You know, are you getting albacore? Are you getting the fancy one? Oh, I don't know. I it was usually it would, it 
it said like white chunk tuna, something chunk tuna. That's all I remember. The chicken of the sea. Yeah. So chicken of the sea, bumblebee tuna, and Starkist are the Mm -hmm. three big canned tuna manufacturers. For a long time, they controlled 80% of the market share. So 80% of all canned tuna was those three companies. One of those three companies. In the U.S. or in the world? That was at least def- that was in the U.S. for sure. And there's still- several other major companies like uh, in South Korea, Thailand, uh, several other places that are that have huge like global market shares, I guess. But uh, if you're in the U.S. and you're buying tuna for a long time, there's an 80 percent chance it was one of those. And in 2015, they got looked at by the Department of Justice for doing some really strange, not cool things, basically functioning as a cartel. From 2011 to 2013, there were several lawsuits. There were lots and lots of fines paid. We could probably do a whole episode just on this. But uh, Chicken of the Sea basically gave up. You know, I've, I've got a bunch of stuff in here, Ben, but Chicken of the Sea, the company basically said, yeah, we're guilty of doing this kind of stuff. Working with the heads of Bumblebee to price fix working with the heads of Starkist to do the same thing, uh, putting fewer, what was it? They would put five ounces of their fish in their six ounce cans. And oh, shrinkflation, right? They would make up for it in the liquid that was put into those. Oh, and um, just that whole concept of price fixing. They were making sure that no company was offering. Do you remember back in the day you could get like 10 cans of tuna for 10 bucks? If you bought 10 cans, you could spend 10 bucks on it and that's it. But then those prices started going up and it was right around the time when we started our YouTube channel, Ben. (laughs) 2011 to 2013. Oh, But anyway, there's a whole bunch you can read on this. I would highly recommend checking out. um, Let's see. There was a Washington Post article from 2017. Here's the title. Three popular tuna brands conspired to fix prices court records allege it's by peter horisky and it's a fantastic read highly recommend yeah again you know when you get past a certain threshold of financial success there is often corruption and we see this throughout history it's not just it's deeper than the canned tuna Fellow conspiracy realists, you can see cyclical trends like this in pretty much any other sort of seafood. There's a huge market in counterfeit calamari. You know, it's pig buttholes, just to be very clear with everyone. Uh, There's also uh, shark flesh sold as different. uh, Look, it's a whole thing. What we're saying is tonight, Paul, Matt and I are zooming in on canned seafood in particular because for most of us, it seems like a pretty humble, approachable thing. It's cheap. It's way more affordable than the fresh stuff, especially if you don't live off the coast. It's shelf stable. Like you said, Matt, it doesn't go bad immediately. And you pointed out, you know, what was it? There was an old Ben Franklin quote about visitors to your house. It said visitors are like fish. After about three days, they stink. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but it is is a real quote. Uh, And also, you know, 
if you are looking to enter ketosis, if you are looking to live a more healthy lifestyle, this stuff, this canned fish is pretty great so long as you can avoid the mercury poisoning. But Matt, that's the question. All this fish, all these formerly affordable cans of seafood, where do they come from? Canned fish. But where does it come from? <laughs> Just so, remi- yeah. Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? Is that is that our uh, is that our old DNA from how stuff works? I think that's stuff of genius, maybe, or infamous inventors. One of those. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You nailed it. Stuff of genius. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. All right. So it comes from all around the world. Obviously, the majority of the world is oceanic, right? Like, um, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably live on land, which puts you in the minority of life forms on the planet. And if we wanted to name the biggest country in the human world for seafood, we would be looking at the country of Thailand. Oh, yes. It alone ships out between six and a half to $7.3 billion worth of seafood every year. Every year. So if we you know, think about what we were just talking about, sales in the U.S., about $9.5 billion worth of seafood. Uh, this is, they're shipping out most of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just like the canned tuna companies, right? There are tons of non-sinister reasons that Thailand would be a big player in the seafood industry. First, of course, location, right? Thailand is a peninsular country. It's absolutely riddled with coastlines and rivers. It's kind of cool stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, in the Gulf of Thailand that's there that you've, you've got Vietnam, Cambodia, and then Thailand that wraps around most of it, that's where just a vast amount of the seafood you probably eat comes from. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And it should bother you because there's another reason for all this maritime success. It's not just location. It's profit margin. Thai seafood exports require less investment because of a dirty, terrifying secret. There is stuff they don't want you to know. A lot of the people in the Thai fishing industry are slaves. It's unfortunately true. And we will tell you all about it when we get back from this quick break. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. It's true. It's True. Slavery is powering seafood. Multiple investigations over years, more than a decade now, have found that Thailand's fishing industry is, as The Economist put it in 2015, quote, rife with trafficking and abuse. Yeah. And it's been looked at multiple times over the years as a major problem. We're going to talk about all of the fixes, or let's put them in quotes, <laughs> the fixes Quote that, yeah, that groups and NGOs, internal Thai officials have attempted to, to do, like some fixes, but oh, it's just not working, guys. Back in 2014, there was an investigation by The Guardian, and they established that, quote, large numbers of men bought and sold like animals and held against their will on fishing boats off Thailand are integral to the production of prawns, commonly called shrimp in the U.S., sold in leading supermarkets around the world, including the top four global retailers, Walmart, Carrefour, Costco, and Tesco. 
You will probably, if you live in the United States, I'm certain you're aware of Costco and Walmart. Tesco is pretty big in the UK, I believe, and maybe other areas in Europe. Uh, I am unaware of Carrefour. It's uh, also UK based. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This investigation, I'm so glad you bring this up. This investigation found that a place called CP Foods, uh, pardon our Thai pronunciation here, Charon Pok Fand, uh, Charon Pok Hand, it, it buys what's called fish meal. Think of it like a livestock feed. It buys fish meal from suppliers that own these boats or operate these boats or buy stuff from these boats that are entirely manned by enslaved people. It's pretty nuts. And we'll get into the mechanics of it. We've learned a lot by, uh, Ben, you shared several articles in the rabbit hole is really deep on this one. Just talking about how you, how easy it is to put someone in an enslavement position by putting them on a boat. If you can keep that boat away from any dock, right, for an elongated period of time, if you can find ways to do that, you literally have someone trapped on a, on a ship, on a boat. Uh, it's nuts. So, but let's talk about fish meal. Cause this is something I didn't really understand. I, I always think of the word chum when it comes to uh, attracting sharks or something like that. I think of fish meal as chum for fish. Does that make sense? Is that even the right way to think about it? It 100% makes sense. Chum is used to entice sharks uh, the same way that chicken feed or cornmeal is used to feed livestock. Fish meal is any substance that can be consumed by maritime organisms that will be sold to consumers like salmon farms or prawn farms, etc. And you know, Matt, it makes me think also, I'm really glad you brought up chum because, <laughs> because I looked into the idea of chum and the idea of chum is throwing throwing the non-profitable parts of a fish into the water such that you can catch a larger fish. It's mm-hmm. kind of a sting operation, honestly. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, U.S. companies have gotten in some hot water for feeding, for tricking chickens into becoming cannibals in the past. That's true. Check out our episodes on the livestock industry. The idea here reminds me of the U.S. corn industry. Corn is heavily subsidized in the U.S. Uh, A huge swath of the annual corn production is never meant to reach you at a grocery store. It's meant to feed other supply chains also, we should do a corn episode. No, for sure we should. But this, this is highly important, right? Because if you are paying little to nothing to acquire the feed that you need, right? Or the, the step one thing, if you don't have to pay anything for that, it 
it's going to significantly increase the profit you make at the end of the process, right? So if companies that are able to, I guess, buy from CP Foods who are using this uh, this slave labor, gosh, I mean, it's really about cutting costs from the top down, right? Or ignoring practices. It's what it Ooh. feels like to me. We'll, we're going to get Ooh. into it. but Kimberly process, yeah. Let's talk about how we even found out. Like, how did anybody find out that there's slave labor going on? Oh, yeah, dude, because some people escaped, primarily uh, people who were kidnapped and enslaved, managed to get off these boats, these nightmarish trawlers around the uh, around this area, the Southeast Pacific. They told the Guardian and they told UN investigators, they told NGOs that they were in absolutely hellish conditions. You would work for 20 hours without a break. And even if you did that, they would still beat the ever-loving Christ out of you just to prove a point. There was common torture. Uh, One of the things that would happen often if a ship got a new batch of enslaved people, they would kill one of the old slaves in front of the new guys just to set the precedent. And yeah, and these people were at at sea on the ocean for years and years and years. The one thing that they would be given freely, not food, methamphetamines drugs yeah and there, and there are personal stories from people who escape this stuff who talk of these fairly small ships that you think would hold maybe 10 12 human beings you know in in the the hold area i guess below deck but there were 30 people sometimes on board these just like stuffed in there like sardines as they're going around trying to uh Fish. No, I, I'm sorry. Is that wrong? Yeah, that's what it. That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah, you're absolutely right, dude. I mean, and these are these are often, by and large, not people from Thailand. These are often migrant workers. So imagine you live in Myanmar or Burma. Some call it. Imagine you live in Cambodia. The economy is broken, right? And you have a family. You have to do your best to secure some sort of future for <laughs> for your kids. So you get uh, you get a job offer from abroad, and they say, "Hey, you can come here to Thailand. There's a more prosperous economy. Work in this factory. We make a bunch of electronic stuff, right? Or work in this." Uh, construction industry, right? We're always building buildings. And so this could be life-changing. The problem is the way it starts, because we are, to your point, talking about orders of operations. The way it starts is a broker's representative tells these people in these adjacent countries that there is a solid job a good opportunity. You can send the money back. Your kids can go to school, stuff like that. And when you get over the border, 
you find out that these brokers, these kingpins of this industry, are not hooking you up with construction. They're not hooking you up with a good manufacturing job. They're selling you to these captains of these boats. Again, small ships and these boats uh, and their captains, I would posit they are small operators in a much larger a much larger organized crime syndicate. Uh, you know, and Matt, we talked about this a little bit. These folks are often quote unquote sold for less than the price of your favorite gaming console. I, I think right now the current, and this is happening now as we record, the current good price is like, the equivalent of 320 us dollars for a person's life Jeez, yeah that's uh that's intense um there are also stories just when we're talking about acquiring people for these uh ships there's the process you just described ben there were some others that were it was it seemed i mean it's all predatory right this is all super predatory there's some that seemed less predatory at least in the beginning where it's a friend of a friend or somebody says, Hey, there's a job opportunity on one of these, one of these boats. I did it for a year. You should do it. Or, you know, I did it for a time. You should try. And it it was never stated specifically this way, but I have a hunch that it would work this way where you may be released from your time on that boat. If you can provide, you know, several other people to replace you or or I'm, I'm imagining it could function that way, but I, that seems kind-hearted on the part of the people who are actually enslaving other humans. But uh, I, I, it was weird because some of the stories were like, well, I just heard it was a friend. It was somebody I trusted, and he said I should go on this boat, so I did. And then I ended up at sea for years. Yeah, the idea of the evil M-to-M kind of approach, it is true. And, and often these folks, once captured and enslaved, are sold from one boat to the next there are too many stories about this we're glad that these people escaped but we are also as hopefully you are very cognizant of uh of the profundity of this problem uh there's one story a guy who used to be a monk in cambodia whose name we're not going to release on air for his safety. Uh, He said the following to the guardian. He said, quote, they kept me chained up. They didn't care about me or give me any food. They sold us like animals, but we are not animals. We are human beings. And then the stories keep pouring in, you know, Uh, like one guy, And they are overwhelmingly dudes. Often, and I know this is going to be very disturbing to a lot of us, often they are children. Uh, One victim of this trafficking who spent years at sea said he had seen at least 20 other enslaved people killed in front of him and in horrific ways, by which we mean torturous uh one guy was tied 
to the bows of four different shipping vessels or fish trawlers, excuse me. And the boats pulled away. It's like being quartered by horses. Unholy, unclean stuff, man. That's messed up. It's a lot of trouble to go to. As you were saying, Ben, like um, making an example to keep everybody in line. Fear for fear for your life because we will go to these lengths. That's uh <clears throat> It makes me think the overseers are also on drugs, to be quite honest with you. Like that is that is that is psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. You know, and the the horror again is linked specifically to the largest farmer of shrimp and prawns in the world, CP Foods. Uh, Matt, you alluded earlier to the order of operations. So how does this stuff, how, how does this mass enslavement reach grocery store shelves? Well, here we go in the most messed up how did this get made episode ever. Uh, CP Foods that we mentioned before is uh, a Thailand operation. They will often have these slave ships that are in international waters. They're off the coast. They're right outside of Thailand, but they're in international waters. They are on a hunt for fish that aren't going to ever get canned by any canning industry. It doesn't matter. They're not, you're not going to can these fish. You might find them at a farmer's market every once in a while. You can actually go to a couple places near where I am, Ben, and find some of the trash fish or fish considered trash. Um, and they're often sold for exactly like the, the actual species names of these fish that most people would not eat, but they are consumed. But they, they catch this trash fish. They send it off to a place to get, I guess, just turned into the meal with those other things that you're talking about, Ben. Like just all the stuff that goes into the grinding process that creates the fish meal that then goes to feeding the prawns. And from there, CP buys that fish meal. Think of like hot dogs, folks. Think of hot dog ingredients, right? Shady, sketchy hot dogs. You don't want to know what part of the pigs go in there. Uh, so. Sketchy hot dogs. I, that is such just a good phrase for something. I'm going to figure it out. Okay. You got it. And so uh, this company, CP, they will buy this fish meal. And I don't want to pick on them too much. We'll give them their, we'll give them their stand at the soapbox in a bit. Uh, but they buy this fish meal from this shady supply chain and then they feed it to these prawns, uh, the shrimp that they have in their farms. And from there, the well, it, it sounds convoluted to say it this way, but the the shrimp eat the fish meal that is gathered by slaves and after you have that kind of double blind and that proxy of order of operations that those shrimp that seafood ends up in all sorts of unexpected places we mentioned walmart we name check costco uk chains tesco carrefour but also like aldi's 
Morrison's bunch of companies in Iceland. What do they all have in common? Dude, they sell frozen and pre-cooked shrimp in a convenient little bag. Maybe even like a little microwave meal. Oh, I, I, I want a uh, shrimp stir fry, but I only have three minutes and 30 seconds. So are we saying there are other big name food companies that buy this shrimp that then go into their like frozen prawns and that kind of stuff? Or is it only stuff that is put out there by CP Foods? 100%. It's the problem is with this with this conspiracy it's somewhat difficult to trace every falling prod because there are so many opportunities to obfuscate there are so many opportunities to play the matryoshka doll shell company thing there, there are just so many opportunities to pass the buck here and the weirdest thing CP Foods readily admits that slave labor is part of their supply chain. They're not doing a they're not doing a matrix dodge. They're doing they're doing like a um a shrug. I do I don't I don't understand. I don't get it either. Uh in again, it's a global corporation the united kingdom's managing director of cp foods back in like 2014 2015 guy named bob miller investigators contacted him and he said the following thing we're not here to defend what is going on we know there's issues with regard to the raw material that comes into port but to what extent that is we just don't have the visibility for real, bro. <laughs> I mean, like, for real. We're not. We're not, of course, saying that these people, these employees of this vast corporation, are readily, actively, you know, rubbing their hands, Monty Burns style, trying to enslave people. But that sounds. That sounds kind of cold, you know. Well, yeah, it makes me wonder if it's just with the prawn fishing or if it actually extends out further in just um, in the waters there in the Gulf of Thailand. Like, how common is it for... Uh, because we're talking about, ultimately, trash fish fishing that is being done by enslaved human beings that ends up feeding prawns that goes, you know, all over the place. I wonder how much that that exists because there's fish meal that goes into salmon fisheries, tuna fisheries, all of the same kinds of things. And I wonder how goes into how much dog it, food, cat food. Hmm. Well, yeah, no, you're right. I wonder how much of it is, is much further widespread. It's pervasive, we could say. And we're, we're honing in on, again, the facts, the things that can be proven and have been proven. We're going to pause for a word from our sponsors, and then we will return with more. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, 
The Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so... There's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday... You can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back. So before these relatively thorough investigations, again, like like Matt and I mentioned, they're honing in not on all seafood. They're honing in specifically on the fish meal to farmed shrimp to your grocery store connection. It is true. It is happening. Even before this, the United Nations and a bevy of NGOs, non-governmental organizations, raised alarm over this insidious, normalized, industrialized slavery in the Thai fishing industry. We've got a quote from Aidan McQuaid, director of an NGO called Anti-Slavery International. And Aidan is pretty blunt, I would say, pretty explicit 
about the issue here. Aiden says, if you buy prawns or shrimp from Thailand, you will be buying the produce of slave labor. Oh, oh boy. We got to read the labels, huh, Matt? Yeah, um, we just have to stay balanced here. And I just have to say this, Ben. We, we have talked about NGOs in the past. It is, you can't throw shade at every NGO that is doing, you know, work in other countries and internationally. You just have to be aware that some NGOs are built a little differently than other NGOs. And you never know what the, uh, it's tough to know what the real motivations are in the players behind an NGO are, right? In this case, pretty on the nose, this is the anti-slavery international NGO. Um, you kind of get a, get what their aims are. Um, just Just putting that out there as people who've listened to our previous episodes. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that because it's true. NGOs can function as governmental organizations. <laughs> yeah. 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 100%. That's a problem. You know what I mean? There, there's a reason that a lot of nations don't like the Peace Corps in their backyard, you know? Uh, and that is, that is something we do need to keep front of mind whenever you hear a think tank or whenever you hear a statement from some high muckety muck in something that is not quite a government agency, they may have some aims, you know, black Monday murders and so on. Ben, I want to, before we move in uh, to the next section here, I just want to shout out uh, one of the sources you found. It's from the, uh, Lowy, Lowy, L-O-W-Y Institute.org. Uh, you can read this article. It's titled Caught in the Net, colon, Slavery on Southeast Asian Seas. It's by J.J. Rose. It's an excellent read. Uh, just It's written very much in a storytelling uh, cadence and with language there that really takes you here and lets you see through the eyes of some of the individuals going through uh, this stuff. So just want to shout that out. Yeah, agreed. Uh, and again, it is, I keep overusing the word heartbreaking. This is a real thing. There are real people who through no fault of their own are enslaved now as we record. And so what do you do in this case? If you like us are interested in the idea of not having people enslaved, then you would go to an institution, right? You would go to the force that is supposed to maintain rule of law in this country. So we'll go to the Thai government. When asked about this, again, insidious, normalized economy of scale, enslavement of people, all for the sake of seafood, the former Thai ambassador to the United States said, quote, Thailand is committed to combating human trafficking. We know a lot more needs to be done, but we have also made very significant progress to address the problem. And Thailand being already a, uh, a hub and a transit point, for all sorts of human trafficking, non-related to the maritime industry, uh, 
they consider this a national priority. But if you look at it, if you look at the years of research, if you look at, again, Matt, the stories of human beings who survived this, it appears that the fishing industry in Thailand is at least partially run by organized crime and at the minimum parts of the government officials in the government factions of the government are on the payroll they're turning a blind eye on purpose yeah it does feel like that that let's talk about some of the things they did there's this organization that was created in response to you know the revelations that there's you know oh something terrible is happening uh, the Sustainable Seafood Task Force was created. This is uh, an in, like an insular industry kind of group. It's made up of the people that buy, uh, you know, like supermarkets that buy this stuff, uh, like wholesale buyers that will buy a whole bunch and then resell to supermarkets and things like that. Anybody, it's really just a bunch of different groups that source these prawns from Thailand. It was set up in 2015. And it's supposed to bring, at least according to The Guardian, transparency and accountability to the supply chain. Fix things, right? All those years ago in 2015. We've got from that same Guardian article a quote here from Steve Trent, who is the chief executive of something called the Environmental Justice Foundation, the EJF. Okay. He's got a, a pretty solid quote here. In, when speaking about the Sustainable Seafood Task Force. I'm just, just going to rattle it off. You ready, Ben? Oh, I'm so stoked. Steve says, Never in my career have I seen a process more focused on talking in hotel rooms in Bangkok rather than actually committing to using their influence to create real change. Holy <laughs> shit! <laughs> Evil. Oh, boy. Oh, no. Yeah, that's the thing, Matt. That's the thing, right? Like, there, there oh, by is... the way, in the Guardian article, then, uh, yeah. quote, the Sustainable Seafood Task Force did not respond to a request for comment. <laughs> oh, okay. gosh. Well, call the hotel room. You know what I mean? Call, you got to call room service first. <laughs> call the front desk. Excuse me. Uh, so there, there is an existential threat to this industry, right? Because we have to ask ourselves the question, which apparently people are asking themselves in hotel rooms in Phuket and Chiang Mai and Bangkok right now, can Thailand's fishing industry survive without the mass enslavement of innocent people? The answer is no. <laughs> the answer is probably not. And we have to ask what can be done like those, like those folks, God, classic Steve. I love that quote. Uh, the, like the, the attempts to combat this, folks, they, they kind of seem like lip service. You know, it reminds me, Matt, it reminds me of the blood diamond uh, uh, industry before, before synthetic diamonds uh, were technologically feasible. And back when De Beers still had its colonial stranglehold on uh, on resources of the African continent, 
they, there was this thing created called the Kimberly process. And the Kimberly process was this idea that one could through various registration and certification barriers ensure that diamonds were mined and cut and refined and sold in an equitable way. It was a total grift. It did not benefit the people who live in diamond-rich areas. <laughs> and, uh, well, I mean, it was like a tracking and self-reporting system, right? Mm-hmm. And anytime yeah. there's an insular uh, industry-based self-reporting thing, it we just history has shown us it doesn't go so great. It just doesn't go so great because there are there are reasons to not do it above board, and it's mostly profit, which is you know the basis of the the company. It's yeah, the basis yeah, of all gonna, capitalism. We're gonna have the foxes self-regulate. You know, we're going to have the foxes report on their hen house maneuvers. Okay. And we're going to yeah. call it, <laughs> we're going to call it something cutesy. Uh, we're calling it the Kitsune process, right? Uh, nice. <laughs> well, but it really, Ben, it really reminds me of chocolate when we talked about that in the past in the, the cocoa farms and, and all that, where there is child slave labor happening. Still. Well, I, yeah, still there is, but there were processes that, oh, who's that big company? It's not an evil empire. It's just a company. What was it? Well, it's, it's, it's near to, uh, it's near. Oh, it's Nestle. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Famous for the manufacture of the Nestle Crunch Bar. Also the, uh, famous for the idea of privatizing water. Uh, also famous for child labor in the world of chocolate. <laughs> Nestle, uh, our, our, our good old pals, the, uh, <laughs> the, the Henry Kissingers of chocolate have decided to institute a kind of Kimberly process for, weirdly enough, fish. Because you didn't know Nestle was into fish, huh? Mm. About it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They um their idea was that again, that you one could institute certain barriers of registration, of compliance, such that you could say, We got this stuff from a supply chain that does not involve mass enslavement. But again, it's so weird because I I don't know that I could sit down and tell you, here's my solution to making sure all the boats operating to catch fish in the Gulf of Thailand don't have slave labor on them in any way in the, in my supply chain that I control. You know, I don't it's know tough. how I You're could right. do that. Yeah. Um, seriously. Like how, how would you prove it unless you had some kind of security firm that is literally checking up on every boat that is of, working of for like, you of 10 to 30 people <laughs> in the Pacific ocean. Right. Checking, I, checking the transparency of a factory that gets daily shipments of trash fish with no names attached. Right. How, how would you do that? You know, I, I love that you're bringing us up, man. We're not, 
we're not necessarily condemning the government of Thailand. And we're not even condemning Nestle, really. It's like it's like trying to come up with solutions, but it doesn't work. And it also keeps them in business, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's like a, if, a, if a car manufacturer started an NGO or a an initiative of some sort to investigate whether tires are necessary, right? They're going to, they're going to have a horse in the race, right? They're going to have, uh, they're going to have a little bit of confirmation bias. Uh, want to shout out a Netflix documentary called Sea Spiracy, hashtag no pun left behind, which examines this along with a uh, <clears throat> boatload of other conspiracies that that we have explored in the past and that when you get to when we get to the idea of condemnation you're right we're not we're not crapping on people who are doing their best you know and there there there's a ton of folks out there in Thailand in the gulf right now who are making an honest living right and they're not enslaved and they're not enslaving people. But what we are doing, what we do condemn, is the idea of enslavement in any shape, form, or fashion. And the results are painfully clear. Even if it is not immediately apparent to all of us in the grocery store, the world's largest seafood exportation industry inherently relies on slavery. And no one's going to do anything about it. Yeah. Uh, some folks will make podcasts about it, I guess. So from our little corner of the global woods and our little podcast here gathered around the campfire in the dark, we want to ask you, fellow conspiracy realist, what are these powerful entities actually doing, aside from lip service, to combat this clear problem? Let's keep in mind that Thailand is a monarchy and does not play around with the power of the king. The current monarch could likely obliterate this practice with just one statement and could save not thousands of people's lives, but hundreds of thousands of people's lives. As we record this evening, there is no reliable estimate on the number of people enslaved in this fishing practice. Well, what do you think? Why don't you let us know? You can find us all over the place. We are Conspiracy Stuff on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. We are Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram and TikTok. No threads yet, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe that's a new thing coming at some point. I probably won't. I won't even be aware, really. Uh, <laughs> but if you don't want to use social media to contact us, you can give us a call. That's true. On a telephonic device, the power is yours. The number is one eight three three stdwytk You'll hear a voice and then you'll hear a beep like so. Beep. And then you got three minutes. Run wild. Let those ponies run. Uh, all we ask is that you tell us your story, tell us your nickname or street name or moniker you always wanted, and let us know whether we can use your name and or message on the air. 
Take care, folks. Sometimes the abyss calls back. Most importantly, if you need more than three minutes, we want to hear from you. We want to see those links. We want to see those photos. Take us to the edge of the rabbit hole. We will do the rest. All you have to do is drop us a line at our good old-fashioned email address. We read every letter we get where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.